Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me is our friend Hugo Lindgren, and this is the episode where we chat with each other about news of the day. And uh, we're recording this one on Sunday night at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, it'll run Tuesday morning. Uh, Hugo, how you doing? I'm good. You know, the big news of the day um, is that your daughter Abby left for camp which, um, I mean, the, her leaving for camp was never really in question, but given your, um, your, your run-ins with the camp, um, it, it, it was running. Yeah. Well, it was kind of a run-in, right? No, it was, it was, it was me just clarifying something in a way that resulted in change. <laughs> we won't go back into it, uh, but we will make one other, one other reference to the, to Tusk family doings, which is, um, you just took your son Lyle to go see, uh, F9. So yeah, thumbs up, thumbs got down. Back. What's the what's the what's your... it's 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 like a modern day version of a mix of like Sophie's Choice, Chariots of Fire, and Turns of Endearment. Sounds <laughs> um, perfect. You know, uh, look, it's a movie where a Pontiac Fiero ends up in outer space. Um, but I will say they had a sense of humor about how absurd the movie is. So you know, at least they were in on the joke. And you know what? Is it a good movie? No, it's it's probably objectively a bad movie, but it's the first movie I've seen in the theaters here in, in New York. I saw a movie upstate, but that's sort of like a theater from 1986. Uh, and this was at Essex Market, which is a brand new theater and the big stadium seating and, and all the stuff and giant screen. And it was just cool to be at a movie, even if it was a pretty bad movie. So Wait, what if did, you what did Lyle think, though? Did he like it? You know what? He liked it more than I did, right. but but I think he recognized also that it probably wasn't a great movie because I asked him, would you prefer this or In the Heights? And he said In the Heights, which is not because he is so into musicals or movies about kind of cultural identity, but just because he recognized that this was a, probably a pretty bad movie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, look, I, I've seen worse Fast and Furious movies. I've seen better Fast and Furious movies. Uh, if you love the genre, have you seen all the Fast and Furious movies? No, no, because you know we saw some of them with Lyle, and some were kind of cool. But there was one that we were watching during the pandemic, and we only got about ten minutes in. And these two guys were going to race, and there was a young woman, and she was like the referee. And then when she announced that the prize for winning the race was her, Harper was like, "This is over. We're turning this off." Um, and so, so that was Abby present for that viewing. Also, was that a full family viewing? It was the four of us, and but you know what? No one really objected to that. So, um, so I've seen some of them, but but not all. Okay. And what was the attendance like at the theater? Was it was it was it pretty crowded? Pretty crowded. Um, it's a really good movie theater. It's down on Essex and like Delancey or something like that. Uh, and it's a really nice movie theater. So, you know, um, if, if you're just looking to have a big movie experience, you, you could do worse than F9. Um, if you're looking, you know, for something that, that will be a contender at Con or something like that, it's, it's probably not this one. So uh, now we're going to switch into the, uh, I guess, what people probably tune into the uh, podcast for, not so much for your, uh, for your film reviews, um, is uh, really? the, the gathering storm in Washington for, for big tech. Yeah. Why don't we just start, why don't you just sort of tell us what you consider to be the salient piece of news this week? Like what? what yeah. So, so here's what's happening. There, there are six bills that were proposed in the House. Uh, they were all aimed to kind of loosen the, the grip of big tech on e-commerce. 
Um, and what's impressive is they, they all passed out of committee. So, you know, I'll, I'll summarize real fast what they do, but it's, it's all effectively designed to try to promote competition. So one says it's illegal for companies like Google or Facebook or Amazon to highlight their businesses over others in their online marketplace. One says that they can't acquire competitive threats that expand the power of online platforms. Um, one eliminates their ability to leverage their control across multiple business lines to disadvantage competitors. One makes it illegal for tech companies to own another line of business that's a conflict of interest, um, and, and so on. And, and they're all kind of variations on the same theme. Um, but but fundamentally, this is you know a bipartisan group of members of the House of Representatives saying um, we distrust big tech so much that we will go after it, we will try to weaken it, and we're, we don't fear the politics of doing so. Well, they, it's not even just fearing the politics of it. They like the politics of doing so. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, when 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 you are less popular and less tr- trustworthy than Congress, um, you know that you've you've fallen pretty far and there's something wrong. Wait, is that what the tech company, they're, they're less trustworthy than Congress? There was a poll that I saw that was put up by the tech companies, and it was pretty uh, pretty close in terms of who people trusted more. And e- e- generally speaking, to your point, Congress does things when they think there is political gain in doing so, and that's the only time they do anything, right? Uh, if, if they're going after Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple, um, it, it's because they believe that those entities are so unpopular and have so little credibility that uh, hitting them scores you political points. And that's true on both the left and the right. I'm interested in, in your, your view on many different aspects of this, but one of them, I, I just don't I just don't get the unpopularity of, I mean, I, I see why people are critical of things that Amazon does or things that Apple does or things that Facebook does, but these are widely used companies. I mean, what, how many, how many, what percentage of Americans are on Facebook? Like 80%? You know, like, yeah, half the world's on Facebook. Yeah. So do people not like Facebook? They don't. I mean, I I think there's there's two separate problems. One is it's the problem of ubiquity. Uh, Facebook or Google or Amazon, they're just like utilities at this point. Right. They are so ubiquitous and they're so widely used and accepted that they're like the phone company or the cable company or the gas company. Nobody likes the phone company or the cable company. Everybody hates them. Right. And so part of it is the more that you were just seen as this unavoidable facet of life that you just simply can't do without um, and you're stuck with it. I think that that actually makes people sort of not appreciate you and, and resent you. So that's number one. But but number two, because that, that's still a problem of success. The other one, I think, is a problem of, of their own making, which is they've been so dishonest with the public for so long about what they are that they've lost all of their credibility completely. Um, What they are, are are for-profit, publicly traded companies that provide you with free, useful services in return for monetizing your data. Um, You agree. You're just really, in in that description, you're really just talking about Facebook and Google because that's not what Apple or Amazon does. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, Apple is still ultimately, you know, selling you endless numbers of apps by being able to figure out what your preferences are and, and push things towards you. And Amazon... There's a there's a basic difference, right? So Google and Facebook, you really are the product. They don't take any money from you or virtually none. Yeah. And and they are selling you. So so if you're a 
running a hotel in Tuscany and you want to reach, you know, people interested in traveling to Tuscany, you're purchasing uh, potential Tuscan vacationers um, from from Google to to show your ads to or, or from Facebook. That's a still a pretty different business. Than, yeah, than- but Amazon Amazon is using all of your shopping data to push products on you, push push services on you, push you towards certain types of vendors. So look, um, I, I think that the, you're right. I think Apple and Amazon are a little more transparent with their customers than Google and Facebook. So let's just limit this for the moment to Google and Facebook. Okay. What, what they tell you is, you know, you can have all these great services. You can, you know, catch up with your best friend from the eighth grade and look at pictures of their cat. And, and do all these things and get all this information, and it costs you nothing, not only in terms of uh, you paying to use the service itself, but in terms of your data being monetized so that advertisers can sell more things to you. Right. Um, and, and as a result, I, I think because everyone now understands that that's fundamentally not true, um, the platforms just have absolutely no credibility, no leg to stand on. And I really believe that consumers are sophisticated enough that if you said to them, look, there's all this cool stuff that you could find out or do or search or participate in through our platforms. But at the same time, we are businesses. And the way that we make money is that we take the data that we glean from your preferences and your choices and, and your searches and we use that to sell them to advertisers so they can better market products towards you, right? Uh, I, I think people are okay with that. We live in an incredibly consumerist capitalist society, and I don't think your average person is going to say, oh, well, if you're going to monetize my data, then forget it. I don't want to use Google. But, but if they're okay with it, then then why does it even need to be said? I mean, why is it, you know, what's what? Because, I, because, they, because the platforms have said the opposite. They have lied about it for so long. They've said instead of, instead of either being silent on it or saying it explicitly in the way I just said it, they say, we protect your data, we protect your privacy, we don't market your your search history to third parties and things like that, when they absolutely do. And so as a result, you know, they've been lying about who and what they are for so long, they are literally now um, less popular than Congress, less trustworthy than Congress. Um, and, and when a bunch of politicians are now seen as uh, the more moral arbiters uh, of how these platforms should work um, than the platforms themselves, that, that really tells you a lot. But I think it's not just a question of how they got to this place, but I think it's a really good lesson uh, going forward, right? If, if you're a business, you're a, a public figure, a civic leader, entertainer, whatever it is, I think be who you are, be transparent, level with people. I, I really think that people respect the honesty uh, more than they mind the downside of whatever it is that that, that you think they're going to worry about. Um, and, and they didn't do that here. And they're at a point now uh, where they may be able to kill these bills because it's, these are really tight margins in Congress and you spend enough money and you can probably stop it short term. But, but long term, um, I, I don't think that they will be able to they'll survive as businesses, but, but they won't be able to survive without seeing changes to their business model forced by Congress. What we've touched on this before, but I'm 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 curious to to revisit the 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 question. What from a from a competitive standpoint, do you have? I mean, you you obviously fund a, a lot of startups in your um in, in, from your from your venture capital fund. You do you think that these uh, these big giants really are have a negative effect on innovation and and the 
uh, the ability of startups to, to get off the ground? Yeah, um, we'll put it this way. So I invest in early stage startups. So seed and series A, which is sort of the beginning of a company's life cycle. I very, very rarely invest in anything that I think will try to compete with Facebook or Google or Amazon or Apple simply because I don't really think it's possible. Now, you, you might build something that they like enough that they just buy it as opposed to building it themselves and squashing you. Um, but even then, they have so much leverage in the negotiation that generally speaking, you know, Instagram was sold for a billion dollars, um, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's, it's you know. Not anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, so I, I think fundamentally, overall, this kind of monopolistic power is antithetical to competition. Um, and while the big tech companies are now using innovation and startups as their sort of stalking horse to try to oppose these bills, um, that it's not what it's about. It's, it's about their profit margins. It's about their revenue and their right to want to protect it. But they're in this situation um, because they were so deceitful in the first place. Now, in a bunch of these articles uh, in the Times in particular, you know, there, there are all these kind of references to uh, pretty negative references to the, the performance of the Obama administration on tech regulation, um, uh, you know, sort of talked a pretty good game on some things, but basically not only did nothing, but there was a pretty steady migration of Obama administration officials you know, to these companies, both during yeah. the, the bomb presidency and, and certainly after. Um, what's what's your view on that? I mean, is 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 the are the Democrats kind of kind of holding the bag on this a little bit? Like, well, a little bit. Look, so I th I think a lot of this evolved, you know, over time. So in two thousand and eight, when Obama won, I, I don't think Facebook and Google were as sort of explicitly lying about who and what they were. They weren't nearly as big as they are today. They were still forming and growing. And so the way that you would regulate them, you know, 13, 14 years ago is very different than the way that you would regulate them today. So I think to a certain extent, the Obama administration was dealing with a, a different context. But yeah, it was an administration that was very, very cozy with Silicon Valley, raised a lot of money from Silicon Valley, got a lot of political support from it. Um, and had a, had a pretty comfortable relationship with it. And I think also, because it is sort of an esoteric issue, it's like the left and Obama tacitly agree, like, okay, you can hit me on this, right? Here's the thing you can attack us on that, um, you know, regular voters still probably aren't paying that much attention to. Um, and, and you can, you know, it's a way for the left to look like they're being intellectually honest without really, you know, requiring much account. Now, here's a, an argument. I'm, I'm not sure I actually think this or agree with it, but uh, but I'm uh, I'm curious what you'd say. Um, you know, we, we live obviously in an age of intense global competition. Uh, these four or five tech companies we're talking about um, are some of the most valuable in the world. They are um, the envy of, you know, pretty much every country in the world. And uh, now the U.S. government is going to uh, position itself as the enemy of these uh, of these companies. Is that a, is that a good idea? Politically or substantively? Well, well, I mean, we've talked about the political angle, so maybe I think uh, substantively, yes, because fundamentally, if you want innovation to continue, you have to prevent against um, giant monopolies that that stifle competition, stifle new ideas, and, and the best way uh, for American innovation to fail 
is just to have, you know, 10 companies that control the vast majority of the market. Uh, I would rather them have to really compete with each other. So I think fundamentally, if you want to encourage American innovation, um, you, you've got to keep the, play, the playing field somewhat more level than it has been so far. So uh, I think that's why there is some bipartisan support for the different antitrust ideas coming out of Congress and the Justice Department right now and why people like me in tech uh, aren't universally opposed to uh, more regulation and more antitrust activity um, because we want to see more companies. How does that, I mean, is this something that comes up in conversations with founders and stuff? Uh, I mean, is this something? Not, that- not really, because again, I'm investing so early in their life cycle that, you know, there's a vague sense of like, yeah, one day we're going to try to sell this company or take it public or whatever it is. But it's really about, you know, can you build a product or service that people want can you survive the regulatory pressure that you'll get from it? Can you get to $100 million in revenue? I mean, th- those are the kinds of metrics that we look for. But if you think about it, the corollary between, say, the, the most kind of well-known example of a startup fighting in trans interest would have been Uber and Taxi is really conceptually not that different than, than Facebook or Google or Amazon effectively being Taxi, which are entrenched interests who don't want competition, uh, and use their monopolistic and market power and political power to try to prevent it. Um, and that's what they will do here to try to stop these bills from passing. So, you know, um, uh, is it exactly analogous? No. And is it the first thing that founders worry about when I talk to them? No. Uh, but at the same time, you know, maybe it's part because I'm not even talking to founders who are trying to take on Facebook because it feels pointless. What, what do you make of the of big tech's uh, lobbying efforts in Washington are they are they doing anything innovative are they being smart about it or is it just throw as many lawyers no. at it as many you know no they've they've become pharma or whatever which is just you know re- re- replace creativity with just you know massive amounts of money lobbyists ads campaign donations and the reality is when you're trying to defend the indefensible. Uh, and when you are lying to your customers and to the public on a constant basis, um, this is what's going to happen. You kind of lose the ability to make substantive, uh, clever policy arguments. So, you know, they'll, they'll pick off people here and there, and that may be enough in, in a Congress with these kinds of margins to forestall regulation from happening. But I think the writing is certainly. So let's talk about your personal dealings with these companies, not not on the business side, but just just Bradley, the the, the human. Now yeah. I know you use Apple products. Um, yep. uh, you you're you're probably using an Apple laptop right now. I know yep. you have an Apple phone. Do you like yep. Apple products? Yeah, I do. Okay, you don't like you don't like the AirPods, though, right? You know, I lose them constantly, and I think the fact that they make it very hard to mix and match them is pretty shitty. <laughs> um, so. You know, that uh, I don't like it for that reason, but I, it's a product that, by the way, I'm constantly ordering new ones because I do need them to, to do my work. So, yeah, look, I think Apple. On your survey, you, do, you wouldn't say you distrust Apple or hate Apple. I don't hate Apple because if I did, I wouldn't buy Apple products. Right. Uh, but I wouldn't say I trust Apple either. I would say they are, you know, $2 trillion company. Uh, that acts in the interest of maximizing its profits at every turn. Um, you don't use Facebook, correct? No, never. Have. And you don't use Instagram or WhatsApp or any of those things. Nope, nope. Um, Amazon. Yeah, uh, you know, I, not so much for books because, as we had on the podcast, Bookshop.org, we had we had the founder on. Um, it's a nice service, and the money goes to indie bookstores. And as someone who's about to open an indie bookstore, I, I want to be supportive of that community. 
Um, but yeah, I still buy their stuff on Amazon and Harper usually kind of scolds me and tells me not to. Yeah. And, and sometimes I listen to her, but, but sometimes I don't. So wait, so Harper is, is anti-Amazon, like explicitly? Yes, Harper is explicitly anti-Amazon. Wow, so she never shops on it? No, she never does. Abby never does. Lyle and I do. Wow. But I would say I at least will consider alternatives before automatically defaulting to it. Okay, so Google, obviously use Google for your own personal search stuff, but also Google is the backbone of, of your companies like email and calendar and all that sort of data. Stuff. Yeah. They do a pretty good job. I mean, obviously you, you use they, it. They do. Look, we migrated from Outlook to G Suite you know, about two years ago and drove everyone internally crazy during the, the migration itself, but ultimately it's, it's a better system. So, you know, that and that that's the rub here. I mean, Google offers incredibly useful products and services. I, I think the only real challenge is they just hide the ball on how they make money uh, and do so to the point where they just don't have that much credibility with the government, with the media, with the public or anyone else. And look, I don't use Facebook, but obviously billions of people do and they find it to be a, a really useful service. So it, we're not debating the efficacy of these platforms. We're debating the way that they talk about their business model and whether the way that they have talked about it ha has caused them to end up in this box. So we're going to ask one more question about this, and then we have a couple other things we're going to talk about, including the uh, Andrew Yang campaign. But the, the last question I want to ask is, so do you see, you, you talked about how these companies sort of would have to adjust their business model. So do you, can you see a, a, a near-term future where they actually sort of force them to break up like Ma Bell kind of thing? Um, yeah, Amazon yeah, they could get rid of a bunch I, of subsidiaries. Well, keep in mind, they're on top of the the bills that are being debated in the House and and the Klobuchar bill in the Senate. There are pending antitrust prosecutions against both Facebook and Google by the Justice Department. Right, and if those were to succeed, uh, it probably would require some level of, of breaking up these companies. Now, look, the the easiest target is Facebook. Um, in part because they're kind of the most disliked of those big four, in part because the solution is pretty easy. You know, Instagram, WhatsApp, and, and Facebook become separate companies again. And by the way, the combined market cap of those three companies may end up being worth even more money than Facebook is uh, today. So I don't even know that it's going to end up being so bad for Facebook economically. Um, but uh, the argument for why they'd be more valuable separately. <laughs> the argument would be, that at any given moment, people decide that they are excited about what WhatsApp is doing or what Instagram is doing, and um, they are able to express real exuberance in those in those stocks. Look, you know, there's an irrational component to a lot of investing, um, and I think that sometimes uh, if you are effectively the phone company you lose some of that pixie dust and, and they might get some of it back. Yeah. If, if it just it, seems that they, they, they utilize their scale pretty nicely in the database. So reducing your scale seems like an inherent disadvantage, but, um, but no, but, but it's not clear what these products are. So at this point, you know, have infiltrated that I'm not really sure that they need their scale to get WhatsApp or, or Instagram off the ground um, at this point. Let us switch gears. Um, well, let's do it one small little thing because you sent me this uh, this clip on on uh, on uh, the potential charges against the CFO of the Trump Organization. Is it Alan Weisselberg? Weisselberg? Um, yeah, I was just wondering, like, is if you're him, wait, wait, you're just let's, gaining... let's explain what's going on first in case you didn't see the news. Sure. Um, go ahead, tell us what's happening. 
Yeah, so he he is sounds like about to be indicted by the Manhattan District Attorney for various forms of financial fraud, of which I think many people believe that the Trump Organization has consistently committed uh, tax fraud and, and other types of fraud, securities fraud, um, over the years. So he, here's the question, if, if you're this guy, Alan Wesselberg, so you, you've been with Trump your whole life. Um, the logical thing to do is to flip. 99% of the time, everybody flips. Um, and that's how prosecutors kind of work their way up the ladder. And Where are you getting your 99% everybody flips? That's just... Is, is from all of the... from all, all right. From my personal experience <laughs> in politics of people being arrested for political corruption and then all of their staffers eventually turning on them. And look, I testified against Rob Lagoyevich, right? Um, now, I, didn't, I didn't flip in the sense that they didn't have anything on me in the first place. So it was, I was just a witness. But... Um, Manafort did not flip, however, we should we should point out. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked out for him, uh, at least short term. So if you're Wesselberg, there's two paths you could take. Right. One would be you do the normal thing. You flip. They're not going to let him out with no jail time, but it's, you know, minimal jail time. And he is the lead witness against Trump. Um, But you could also say the, the Trump supporters are so crazy and so aggressive that this guy would fear for his safety if he were to flip on Trump. And if you believe that a Republican will win in 2024 uh, and they win with Trump's blessing or it's Trump himself, um, then you get pardoned. And by the time that this trial is totally done, you're not going to serve much time in jail. You get pardoned and, you know, you were never a rat. So I, I don't know which way he'll go, but I, but I bet that it is a harder decision than it normally is for people uh, in these situations. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 overall, I'd have to say that my takeaway is not, not being all that concerned with his personal dilemma. Um, it, it's, it's thinking that if they're going after this guy on some pretty low grade, like tax infraction infractions, after all, like they must not have anything. Oh, I don't know. Really? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm trying to separate out what I hope is the case right, and what, right. what seems to be the case. Right. Well, no, this is kind of how prosecutions work, is you kind of work your way up the ladder. I mean, what they need to be able to prove is that there was a, you know legal activity, which seems like it's a pretty good chance there was, and that Trump was aware of it and participated in it. Um, to get to the second, you need people like Wasselberg on the inside to testify and say, yes, Mr. Trump directed me to do A, B, and C. Right. Uh, right. And that's why Trump, you know, pardoned everyone he could was to try to keep people from saying that about him. And I think why he'll try to use his power outside of office to continue that trend. Right. All right. Let's turn just for a few minutes uh, to the other big news of this week, the New York City mayoral primary, Democratic primary. Um, The candidate you have been advising, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, uh, conceded early on Tuesday night. Um, Yep. And tell us about uh, how we got to that point. Yeah, you know, it was it was a interesting race in that uh, we started out ahead and kind of progressively lost steam over the course of the campaign to the point where by election day we weren't really even you know in strong contention. And I think that happened for three reasons. Um, the, the the first is the zeitgeist change. So when Yang started running, we were still in the middle of COVID. The vaccines were just, just getting going. Um, and it was all about recovery. It was all about vaccinations. It was all about how do we get the economy back on track again? And then, you know, kind of 
in a somewhat surprising move, the, the government, state, federal, and local all did a very efficient job in providing vaccinations. Um, and the combination of that plus all of the different stimulus bills in Washington meant that the economy was kind of strong. People weren't, didn't seem to be suffering as much as, as they had been. Um, people were physically uh, protected from COVID by getting vaccinated. And it just went from being the number one issue to not really an issue at all. And if, if that had happened on its own, it still might not have been fatal for us. But at the same time, at least in New York City, crime and shootings and violence became the number one issue. And it's interesting because when crime is not a problem, voters don't really think about it. They don't vote on it. It's, it's just not really a factor. And then when it is a problem, it's the number one issue by like an exponential margin. Right. Uh, right. And Eric Adams, who is the likely winner, uh, spent 22 years as a police officer. There was no way to out-cop Adams. And while Yang's policies on public safety were were you know, not that different from Adams in terms of being pro-law enforcement. Uh, one is just a, a random tech entrepreneur who, you know, says the right things, but doesn't have a particular background in, in public safety. And someone else who, you know, was a member of the NYPD for a very, very long time. And the voters gave him a tremendous amount of credit for that. So, so one is the zeitgeist shifted. Two is, look, we took on the machine. Right. You know, this whole campaign was Yang versus the machine, Yang versus everyone. And we were going to run a campaign to prove that union endorsements don't matter and newspaper endorsements don't matter and endorsements from politicians don't matter. Um, and I think that while that's still the direction ultimately that politics is going in, um, that that was not sufficient uh, for this time around. There's a reason why they say you can't fight City Hall. Um, we tried to and we lost. I think in part for the, the third reason being that um, we both fought City Hall and, and we fought the kind of progressive machine at the same time. Um, progressive voters early in the campaign like Yang because, you know, he was this sort of fun presence on the stage uh, during the presidential. People liked the concept of universal basic income. He then went and campaigned for Biden and Kamala Harris and then for the two senators in Georgia. And so he walked in with a pretty positive reception uh, from progressive voters. But I think when progressive leaders realized that Yang's positions actually were not their own, uh, they were so afraid of him winning that they just went after him with everything they had. Uh, the New York Times kind of joined them in that fight. I think Times were at one point were at eight negative giant stories on Yang without covering any other candidate at all. And the combination of losing support among progressives, fighting the machine, and then seeing the zeitgeist change from COVID to crime, Ultimately, it was just too much to overcome. Well, one of the things I'm I'm relatively new to the Tusk universe, but but uh, one of the things that I've been impressed with is these uh, is the sort of internal communications with your with your group, and and one of the things you raised uh, this week and took on uh, was just this issue: would would uh, would Yang have been uh, better off without you as the consultant? Yeah. Um, you as as you actually discussed the same thing. You, you said you know. You like the sort of taking on all comers kind of thing. Like that's something that suits your personality. And and, and so the idea of, of fighting the machine was really appealing to you. And you kind of leaned into that. Um, t- tell me what, how you sort of, uh, uh, how you explain this to, to the group. You, you obviously have a, a lot of staff members who, who've worked incredibly hard over the last several months, um, really given over their lives to this campaign. And, and obviously you're grateful to them for, for everything they did. But, but you also wanted to, take on this, you know, kind of, kind of difficult subject. Yeah. I mean, look, 
I, I think it's fair game to say, were we a reason why Yang lost? And the argument for yes would be um, the progressive community went crazy uh, when they heard that we were running Yang's campaign and they focused a tremendous amount of effort and attention uh, coming after me and, and my staff. Um, and that ultimately, I think, you know, hurt Yang standing with progressives and with reporters and other people. And so arguably we were an albatross for them that if someone else were running the campaign, uh, maybe they wouldn't have had. Now, when you really look at it, I think the answer is probably no one other than us could have stood up a, a full comprehensive mayoral campaign, um, in a, in a matter of weeks, you know, some of the other candidates like Stringer and Adams have been running for years and years. Uh, Yang decided in December of 2020 to run for mayor, and by mid-January we were running and ended up with a full campaign, and we raised the maximum amount of money. Uh, we were probably as aggressive on earned media and social media and digital media as, as any candidate out there, uh, put out as many or more policy ideas than any other candidate out there. So we ran a really robust campaign. I don't know that that would have been feasible uh, without the people from my team who, who worked insanely hard around the clock um, to make all of that happen. So I, I don't think he probably could have run effectively without us at the stage where he got into the race. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think I underestimated my own public profile and how it had changed since I last ran a mayoral campaign uh, and the amount of attention that I would personally uh, get um during the campaign and there's no way to argue that that wasn't a negative for him now the other point you made though was uh just about like why you did it in the first place obviously you liked andrew yang as a candidate and that that's maybe the most important thing um but but uh new york city politics is is not the most important part of the the company's uh uh i mean it's not it's not where the company makes most of its money it's not it's it's, it's risky um, getting involved uh, in a in a pretty dirty race like this one was, um, uh, but you feel you feel like you did the right thing. Uh, yeah, look from an economic standpoint, who the mayor is doesn't really matter that much. Tusk Strategies, one of a bunch of businesses within Tusk Holdings, uh, the political practice in New York is one piece of that, um, and that practice did extremely well when we were both of Blasio's chief antagonists for years. So clearly, being liked by the mayor is not a prerequisite. Um, with that said, I, I live here. I love this city. I'm raising my kids here. My business is here. Uh, I'm opening a bookstore here. Uh, you know, to me, New York City is is home. And we had eight years of an absentee mayor who just hated the job. And I looked at the options that the city had going forward and felt like all the choices were either real political hacks or extreme ideologues. Um, and felt like in Yang, you had someone who could govern in a bloomberg style of attracting a lot of talent, appointing talent across the board, giving people the freedom to come up with big ideas, to take risks, even to fail. And I felt like Andrew's ability to run that kind of administration was materially greater than the other candidates. And, and second to that, also, just because he's such a big independent thinker, you know, you would have this this laboratory of the city of New York, the greatest city in the world, to try out all kinds of ideas. And they could be uh, ideas around new technology, could be ideas around new social norms, 
Um, it, you know, there's all kinds of, of different ways to, to test it out, but this incredible laboratory, um, I had uh, off the record said to Ben Smith, the reporter from the Times, that, you know, I love that Andrew was an empty vessel. Ben then used it on the record and uh, that quote was used against Andrew quite a bit throughout the campaign. But to me, that was the point, right? You had someone who was uh, a completely independent thinker, didn't know anybody anything. If we had won, would have had to not worry at all about patronage or politics or anything else, um, and was willing to come up with really big ideas. And to me, having that kind of opportunity to experiment in a city like New York um, was the opportunity of a lifetime. And that's why I did it, even though um, it probably wasn't smart for my business. It certainly wasn't good for my reputation. Um, but here we were with an opportunity to, A, potentially do great things for the city, and B, look, not that many people have the chance to impact who the mayor of New York City is. I, I do. And that's a very, very lucky position to be in. It's a very privileged position to be in. And generally speaking, I try to live my life in a way that if I believe in something and if I have the ability to impact it, I try to do so. And sometimes I succeed. And if you look at our work on hunger and mobile voting, other things like that, uh, that happens quite a bit. And sometimes I fail. Uh, and I certainly did in this case. Um, but to me, look, you get one life. I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in an afterlife. I think this is it. And you make as much or as little of your life as you want to and you can. And for me, I'm always going to make the most of it that I possibly can. And that means I'm going to take risks. And that means I'm going to do things that are hard, which means I'm going to fail. Um, but as long as I did it for the right reasons, I don't regret it. Well, on that note, Bradley, thanks very much. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back together next week. Yeah, thanks. And hey, by the way, if you can rate and review, I've, I've noticed that some of you have. I really appreciate it. It's what gets us wider circulation so we can take these ideas in this podcast and bring them to a bigger audience. So, so thanks for listening. And please do that if you can. And we'll be back uh, in a couple of days. Uh, who, who will our Thursday interview be? Do you know? Off Your good friend, Gary Ginsburg. Gary Ginsburg, uh, who wrote a... I'm not going to say he was the last person I thought would ever write a book when I first met him, but he wasn't the first person I thought would, but he's written a book. Not only wrote a book, but a apparently very well-reviewed book about the best friends of U.S. presidents. Yeah, no, so. it's, it actually is a very... I've, I've, been, I've been reading it and it's... It's it's actually pretty amazingly good, and uh, it's going to be a really good conversation. Yeah, so so come back in a couple of days for Gary, and uh, we'll see you till then.